Motivation and inspiration are powerful tools that change and influence perspectives, voices, and projects that shape the world. With all the negativity in the world, it can be hard to find those rare and beautiful stories that tell of inspired spiritual activism and individual healing journeys. Walk the path with me, Dr. Trish DeRocher, on the show Heart, Change, Consciousness, where we inspire listeners to take action towards a more just world. We'll hear from authors, change makers, influencers, activists, poets, filmmakers, and cultural workers who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. Heart Change Consciousness allows us to understand the world from different perspectives and highlights what is possible when we are fearless and open ourselves to our soul purpose and engage each other across boundaries. So let's self-heal and open the path to self-sovereignty. Heart Change Consciousness begins now. Hello, all. Welcome to Heart Change Consciousness. I'm your host, Dr. Trish DeRocher, and I'm here today with Dr. Aziz Fatnasi. Um, Dr. Fatnasi is an anthropologist, uh, an assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies in the core division, and also lead faculty in the de- in the degree design lab at Champlain College. <laughs> A little tongue twister. Um, Aziz's teaching and research focuses on multimodal literacy processes, transnational networks, and aspirational resilience strategies, utilizing the methodology of participant action research. So prior to Champlain College, um, Aziz served as a research fellow with uh, the College for America at Southern New Hampshire University, and also as a research assistant, uh, sorry, research associate, excuse me, Aziz, research associate in the Department of Anthropology at Indiana University. Aziz's applied work in international development engages topics of youth, migration, education, cultural resilience, and human rights activism. Over the past 10 years, Dr. Fatnasi has led and consulted on multimodal projects engaging these issues for government, industry, nonprofit, and community stakeholders across North America, Europe, and the MENA region, which is the Middle East and North African region. So Aziz, thank you so much for coming and being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk. I am too. Um, and I I always love talking with Aziz because I never know where the conversation will go. <laughs> um, so Aziz and I had an opportunity to work together a few years ago. And as part of that, we co-organized a conference panel with staff and students called Decolonizing Bernie Land, uh, Bernie Land, not like Burning Man, Bernie Land as in Bernie Sanders, imagining, practicing, and modeling coalitional liberatory education at PWIs or predominantly white institutions in Vermont um, for the National Women's Studies Conference. Um, And that brought us to have sustained conversations about many of the topics that we'll discuss today, including the limits of institutional diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and what it means to really practice and model alternative forms of community and pedagogy that encourage people, whether college students or global citizens, um, to, to share space and to show up with 
our full humanity and to really meet each other in dialogue and reciprocal exchange without downplaying and also without exaggerating the different histories and cultural expressions that we bring. Right. Um, Chandra Mohanty has an, uh, a phrase called uh, common differences. Right. How do we kind of show up with our common differences and really meet each other um, in these dialogues? So, you know, I love having conversations with Aziz because our training, our background is very, very different. Right. Our life paths have been very, very different. And there's also a lot of overlaps in our ethos. Right. So, um, Talking with Aziz always makes me rethink things that I thought I understood uh, with new language and new frameworks and new concepts. Um, and I love that Aziz approaches everything with groundedness and a deep curiosity, right? So um, when we did work together in faculty meetings, I would always find myself all worked up. Um, even though I would coach myself before the meetings to be like, not this time, you're going to stay calm this time. And then it didn't happen. Um, and then, you know, then I would hear Aziz kind of very calmly and deliberately somehow, um, you know, kindly somehow explain why a proposed idea is misguided, right? And so Aziz has a lot of patience and humility that allows them to really listen to what other people are saying, um, not because the ideas are necessarily valid, but just because Aziz is clear enough to hold on to their own worldview and truth that they don't need to speak over someone else. Um, and so instead they listen and learn like any good anthropologist. And so I've taken quite a few notes from Aziz on how to do this. Um, and I also just want to mention that Aziz is really dearly loved uh, by their students, um, which when you're teaching about global issues, uh, it's not the easiest thing to achieve, especially at a predominantly white college uh, in the Northeast in the US. So I just want to mention that. Um, so Aziz, you have so many different hats um, and so many different layers. You know, at, at one time you were a pretty serious hockey player. And I just found out you also had an undergraduate minor in sustainable landscape horticulture, which explains some of our, our conversations about gardening and, and permaculture and these kind of things. Um, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners just more about who you are, your journey, and what has brought you to do the work that you're doing in the world. Yeah, thanks, Trish. That was uh, quite the introduction. I really appreciate your, your kind words as well. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm an assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies and the lead faculty in the degree design lab, which is indeed a tongue twister. Um, but uh, quite generally, I'm an anthropologist. And uh, what I do is try to examine the world around me and make sense of the meaningful engagements that I have with other people and uh, that other people have with each other. Um, and so for me, uh, getting into the work that I do is really uh, a practice of personal interest, uh, because I myself want to learn um, in environments that are uh, equitable and inclusive. Um, so going through undergraduate at the University of Vermont, uh, studying anthropology, um, I kind of had the chance to engage with a lot of different uh, perspectives that I wouldn't have engaged with otherwise. Um, and those kind of compounded through my, my practical work in uh, going and exploring um, my cultural heritage, which is uh, Tunisian heritage um, up in Montreal. Uh, was lucky to do some uh, independent studies with uh, 
a professor at UVM, Dr. Emily Mineta in linguistics. Um, and essentially, uh, this kind of spurred my, my curiosity and interest in cultural exchange. Um, I myself had experienced some intercultural discomfort growing up uh, as the, the child of a Tunisian and an American. Um, and trying to fit in between two cultures was kind of uh, confusing in many ways. Um, so I set my sights to do uh, work around this and to actually try to make sense through um, some models and structures of thought uh, to help myself process it. So um, that just kind of connects to what I do today. Um, I really see research and teaching as in intimately connected and equally informative. Um, and I think effective teachers should be at the cutting edge of recent scholarship and events, but also kind of command a broad knowledge of uh, emerging uh, fields of interculturality. So they inform their pedagogical approach. Um, much like our students' lives, um, our academic fields aren't just uh, collections of facts, stories, and uh, concepts, but they're dynamic areas of engagement. And um, if we treat this as, uh, as a possibility to engage, it can be a rewarding exercise. So that's brought me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you know, so often our personal journeys, right, lead us to our work in the world, because as, at a certain point when we cultivate some tools and skills and, and structures, right, as you're suggesting, right, we, we just want to share those, right, and, and kind of connect with other people and, um, yeah, so that they don't have to kind of stumble in the dark that maybe in the same way that we have. Yeah. Um, so, Aziz, you are currently co-lead faculty and director of intercultural and experiential learning um, in the degree design lab, got at that time at Champlain College, um, where you've also taken a lead role in generating intercultural competencies for the college. Um, and so as, as part of prepping for our time today, I read a book chapter that Aziz wrote called Multimodal Ethnography as Pedagogy, Developing Interculturality in General Education. Um, and in this piece, Aziz cites a, a scholar, Deardoff, um, that defines intercultural competence as uh, effective and appropriate behavior and communication in intercultural situations, which can uh, be further detailed in terms of indicators of appropriate behavior in specific contexts, right? So um, already we're, we're hearing how it's not just um, kind of intellectual ideas that, that you're working with, but applied, like how do we bring these tools into our daily life practices? So. Aziz, I'm wondering if you can tell us more in your own words what interculturality and intercultural competence means to you and why it's important. Um, and then, you know, what skill sets and mindsets and literacies are needed to create a space of intercultural competence. Um, and then as I was sitting with this, because I was thinking about like the, the intercultural competencies, I'm wondering if there's a difference between intercultural literacy and intercultural competence, right? It, it feels to me like competence is like the bare minimum, like the basic that we want to get to. And that literacy might be something a little more skillful. Yeah, uh, you know, as you've mentioned, there are a number of concepts kind of packed into inter interculturality. Um, and for me, this was kind of the beginning of my journey was to try and figure out what the the overall consensus might be. And I found this definition, which you read out, um, 
you know, the effective and appropriate behavior of communication uh, and communication in intercultural situations, which again can be further detailed. In terms of indicators of appropriate behavior in specific contexts, quite a mouthful. And um, <laughs> I, I found it to be a bit uh, generic. I mean, what are mm -hmm. what are these uh, indicators? What are, what are these appropriate behaviors? And what are these specific contexts? Um, and Deardoff, to to her credit, kind of goes on and and talks about uh, some key components in developing this competence. So, you know, assessing uh, kind of the world around you, developing an iterative mindset towards uh, development itself, uh, developing critical literacies, which kind of gets at what you were talking about a bit around knowledge creation, acquisition, and deployment. Um, attitudinal reorientation towards respect, openness, and curiosity, and uh, something that kind of attracts me the most as an anthropologist, the cultivation of an emic and etic perspective, so uh, internal and external um, perspectives. Um, you know, in terms of doing all this stuff, though, I think, you know, sometimes when we use the term literacy, we might limit ourselves to the textual, uh, you know, thinking mostly about engaging with um, you know, asynchronous works of people from other cultures. Um, where I would kind of set what my goal was, especially in the, in the book chapter you mentioned, um, is kind of around practices. Um, and I think that practices and literacies are kind of both built upon uh, collective um, effort towards this development process. So, you know, in education, we do a lot of this stuff with, you know, uh, study abroad, service learning, um, sometimes even domestic um, uh, experiential courses. Um, but the point is to create these things, you need to have real world spaces. It's very hard. And this is one of, again, the problems of anthropology. It's really hard to replicate natural human behavior. Um, so if we're trying to create these spaces where we artificially, you know, develop students' intercultural competencies, we're kind of doing a half service. And so, um, what inter interculturality means, I guess, at its heart is getting out there and experiencing the world around you and um, recognizing that your perspectives and behaviors and uh, even the knowledge you have is, is culturally determined. And so are uh, the knowledge bases and behaviors and, um, and actions of others. Um, and to be a more effective uh, member of the global society, um, you kind of need to have a sense of openness towards that and to engage other people um, on an equitable level. Yeah. So, I mean, the show is heart change consciousness. And for me, interculturality is all about the heart, right? Like we can talk about these concepts all day. We can read papers, we can come up with the, the words and the definitions, but interculturality has to be something that we actually embody, right? And I'm also thinking that in order to really uh, meet each other in dialogue and, and ethical reciprocal exchanges, that also means that we need to kind of know who we are <laughs> and our worldviews and what we're bringing into any exchanges or, or any spaces in which we are, um, yeah, just coming to be with other people. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, if you could speak more just about those practices, because I think that's really, really important. Yeah, so um, this is kind of one of the more difficult tasks of making this, um, again, kind of broadly defined thing a bit more specific. Um, and, you know, working at a academic institution, this is always a practice of engagement and negotiation, um, because as academic specialists, we are uh, disciplined, as the phrase might be, 
um, into a certain worldview. And so, um, you know, even the, the meanings of, of certain terms have different uh, definitions. So, um, you know, first it's kind of developing that interculturality of working with people. But um, when I sat down with my colleagues and had some of these discussions, we kind of focused on several concepts. So, um, achieving proficiency might require individuals to attend to the diversity of perspectives, practices, and beliefs found within and across cultures with an open, so thinking about ethno-relativity or, you know, relating everything to your own positionality or ethnocentric, um, that, that kind of dichotomy, mm -hmm. um, you know, being reflexive, so being integrative versus exclusionary, you know, seeing difference not as something that uh, disconfirms uh, a belief you have, but finding a way to incorporate that into your uh, own practice. Um, and curiosity, so this uh, inquisitive versus, I guess, supercilious approach. Um, you know, um, I guess tokenizing, trivializing, otherizing um, difference can also be um, quite damaging um, because, um, you know, we are indeed all humans, uh, which is a commonality we have. And I think starting from that commonality, which might even be the most important factor is is really key. So um, finding that space, I think, is where you want to head off from. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking in um, uh, in women's studies, there's been like a lot of just revision of curriculum over the years of like, how do we think about the transnational? How do we think about holding the commonalities and the differences while we're still thinking about like the power differentials across spaces and the differing histories, right, that, that people have? Um, and so there's a critique of um, diversity and inclusion efforts that are what we call add and stir, right, where there's like this kind of like presumed white, straight, hetero, you know, male at the center and then everyone else is kind of somehow deemed other and then it's just like we'll just add this perspective and this perspective and this perspective but there's no real decentering or reworking that allows for true dialogue or reciprocity um and Chandra Mohanty has a has a piece where so she critiques that and then she talks about okay so then women's studies curriculum have started to do what she calls the feminist as explorer model, which is to just kind of take the U.S. unproblematized and uninterrogated as a starting point, and then like, like visiting other cultures outside of the U.S. Like, we'll explore this place and this place and this place. But again, there's no consideration of the plurality of cultures within the U.S., right, or a truly reciprocal exchange, right, where like um, th there's no one assumed way of being at the center. But um, so for me, interculturality is more this um, meeting from where we from where we are without a presumed center, right? And then when we do that kind of the internal work to think about, okay, what histories and perspectives and worldviews assumptions am I bringing? Um, how am I kind of interfacing with the, the people around me and, and what worldviews and cultural norms and experience has, have they had? Um, it becomes a lot more fluid than these kind of uh, definitions, right, or the kind of the flat competencies. And I guess, Aziz, I bring that up because in the same chapter, 
you're talking about how in um, in these institutional efforts to create and implement these new intercultural competencies, you didn't really see these things translating into pragmatic practical shifts, shifts for BIPOC, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, students, faculty, and staff at the predominantly white college that, that you're doing this work at. Um, and you kind of implicitly suggest that these efforts remained more as intellectual exercises, right? There's there's kind of like a a, a spinning uh, or spitting of ideas between colleagues, but there's not really a a meaningful um, culture shift that that is uh, increasing the quality of life for for BIPOC and international community members. Um, and so in this piece, you kind of juxtapose this. Um, next to a more informal program that you helped to co-found called the Brotherhood Brunch. Um, and you define this in your piece um, as a program, quote, for BIPOC men to gather in critical discourse, mentorship, collaboration, and resilience building, um, end quote, which, which you suggest offered a, a richer balance of international and U.S.-based perspectives, and that your partic participation in these events which again, these are ev events and not competencies, right? So there's like an embodied uh, component did actually open up more of a space of meaningful intercultural engagement. Um, so Aziz, I'm wondering if you can share with us some perspective on the disconnect that you were witnessing between the more institutional initiatives and the informal initiatives um, and what made the Brotherhood brunches maybe feel more real. Um, and I'm wondering how might uh, a more horizontal approach to uh, the informal gatherings differ from perhaps a more vertical, um, you know, power dynamic approach to creating competencies and just how your background in community driven initiatives might have informed the kind of space you were able to cultivate. Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, I think it, one of the things that often stymies a lot of my my hope, I guess, is uh, institutions. Um, you know, I think there's there's great benefit to institutionalizing things, but what we run the risk of, um, you know, on the opposite side of having some standardization is over standardization. So, you know, terms like modernity, development, progress, culture. Um, get codified in certain ways that, uh, again, kind of privilege, as you're mentioning, this center. Um, and so when we're thinking about kind of decentering our practices, uh, one thing that I realized was I kind of had to get out of the classroom. Um, the classroom is a very structured space, oftentimes, where, you know, you have a curriculum and a syllabus. And, you know, if you don't um, follow those things, sometimes, um, you know, you can have issues in terms of the disconnect between student expectations and um, even administrative expectations. Um, and especially working in a general uh, education department where, you know, you're, you're again, as I mentioned, working with people from across the disciplines who may not necessarily have uh, similar definitions, but might not even, you know, really um, think about those kinds of issues. It can be really hard to standardize that which I get, um, that's a very uh, difficult challenge. But what I found was stepping out of these spaces kind of allowed me to uh, have kind of a super narrative and a meta narrative, I guess. Um, so working with students, uh, especially um, black indigenous and people of color uh, who identify as male at the college kind of allowed me to 
uh, both critique and support their work in those spaces. Um, and, you know, in the description, we, we mentioned critical discourse, mentorship, collaboration, and resilience building. Um, we found those things, uh, and I, when I say we, um, I co-founded this with um, the director of uh, the Office of uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which um, is kind of an interesting name for that office. But, um, you know, we thought long and hard about what couldn't be provided in both of our spaces, um, at least not in a way that was authentic and meaningful for the uh, participants. And it was this kind of engagement. So um, what we decided to do was to talk with students over lunch, essentially, or, or brunch, um, to get in uh, local uh, BIPOC uh, professionals who, um, in some instances, have, had experienced certain topics we were engaging with, um, you know, things like police violence, um, you know, economic injustice, social injustice, um, and even just the everyday kind of uh, living of life um, that one has to do, especially in the Northeast, um, while BIPOC. Um, and to provide them with some sense of uh, how these things play out. So speaking of interculturality, um, how do we navigate, as, as you mentioned in that um, decolonizing Bernie land, a Bernie land, um, you know, culture? Mm -hmm. um, how do we engage with that uh, form of, I guess, neoliberalism um, to kind of get to the experiences we want to and need to have to sustain us. Um, and that was a big part of it, sustaining. Um, I myself, during the, the year that we, um, you know, created this program, felt uh, a bit dejected from the responses that uh, institutions were giving uh, to many of these uh, events happening around the country and around the world. Um, you know, I wanted to talk a bit about um, Islamophobia in, in a way that wasn't uh, perhaps uh, curtailed by the, the confines of the institution. Um, and so this space kind of allowed us to do that. We had, um, you know, uh, American and uh, non-American participants, which um, I don't want to bifurcate their views uh, geographically, but um, in terms of the conversation, we were able to kind of escape this uh, monofocal context of um, how blackness and indigeneity and uh, being a person of color is experienced, um, because there are some connections across cultures, um, you know, in, in specificity, I guess, talking about um, the experience of, um, of Arabs in France or in, in many European countries, um, kind of juxtaposing those uh, against the experiences of people of color in the United States, um, really kind of helped them to see different ways of engaging and uh, interacting with uh, these experiences. Um, so that was, I think, really, really key. Yeah. Um, and, and what I hear you saying is just, you know, as much as we need structures, <laughs> we also need spaces that are less structured because the institution and, and those, I don't know if you use the language of overstructure or hyperstructure, but it, it can kind of take the humanity out of our exchanges, right? Um, and so when we can uh, cultivate spaces where we're able to just really dialogue and and share ideas right D detached from um detached from a grade book right but also detached from the institutional objectives to really just meet each other in the moment and and to talk about you know 
lives and, and experiences and perspectives and what we've noticed, right? Like that's really important. And I think that there's so much of a, a shrinking of, of the commons. There's not a lot of spaces to really do that. Um, so I, I appreciate you really um, carving out the space and time and, and utilizing your skills to create that space that hadn't been on that campus. Um, so we are going to take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, um, Aziz is going to share with us some of the pedagogical techniques that they've come up with to really build intentional intercultural exchange, both inside and again, outside of the classroom, right? Like Aziz has been sharing with the Brotherhood Brunch, um, and also the role of spirituality in this work. Like where is there room for the heart in intercultural exchange? So I hope you'll return after a short break. I made myself sick with this cancer inside. Call it hatred that I made over long time. Hi, I'm Patricia McNair, host of Divine Guidance with Patricia. And I'm here to help you live a more authentic, spiritually connected life. Join me every first and third Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Being who you are in everyday life is the key to unlocking soul wisdom within that our whole self already knows. Get ready to embrace your spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being, your whole being. Discover your gifts and strengthen your connection to spirit. We will explore earth guidance, divine truth, and love past life lessons, and so much more. So listen in to Divine Guidance with Patricia and join in your personal adventure to triggering, opening, validating, and being all that you are. For more information about me, visit divineguidance.earth. Champion your life with me, Leanne Champion. First Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on TransformationTalkRadio.com. That new gym membership might help you get fit, but what about emotional fitness? Jump into the rushing waters of personal growth. Don't waste another minute feeling unfulfilled. Visit ChampionYourLife.com and let's do this together. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Join Jennifer Noel Taylor on the hit show Quantum Touch Radio, supercharging your life on TransformationTalkRadio.com. 
You'll take a quantum journey as well as reveal powerful yet simple steps to create more abundance, better health, emotional and mental vibrancy and happier relationships using universal quantum touch principles. For more information, visit quantumtouch.com. Healing has a ripple effect. One person's healing affects everyone around them. This is where the power of sharing our stories can be so important. Tune in to Playing on the Edge Radio with Megan Edge each month on Transformation Talk Radio as Megan provides you with ways of sustaining radical and powerful changes in your life. Enact the power of radical change. To find out more about Megan Edge, visit her website at meganedge.ca. But I held on to the reins and had a ride. Now I'm tired of feeding. It does not make me come alive. Hello, all. I'm Dr. Trish DeRocher, and you are joining us today on Heart Change Consciousness. We're coming back. We're here with Dr. Aziz Fatnasi. Um, Dr. Aziz Fatnasi is Assistant Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies and Director of Intercultural and Experiential Learning in the Degree Design Lab at Champlain College. Um, and today we're discussing the limits of institutional diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, um, and also innovative pedagogies or kind of teaching and, and engagement strategies for building communities of intercultural practice and engagement. So um, where we left off, we were, we were talking about um, one of uh, Aziz's kind of points of entry with the Brotherhood Brunch and creating um, these spaces and pockets where there can be more intentional, informal um, intercultural, intercultural exchange on, uh, on college campuses. Um, and, you know, I'd love to think a little bit more in terms of inside the classroom, right? So there's like the institutional, um, you know, mandates that are kind of coming down that you're even working with in terms of intercultural competencies. There's the informal spaces outside of the classroom that you're cultivating, you know, through the example of the Brotherhood Brunch. And then there's also your teaching practices inside the classroom. Um, and I've always thought about the classroom as kind of a micro level of, of the macro, right, or a microcosm of the macro, where everything that's going on out in the world is also happening in the classroom. So the more that we can kind of um, help students see that and have some skills, uh, it's not just for the classroom, but also how they can bring that out into the world. Um, so Aziz, you've been using the language of cultivating a multimodal ethnographic approach um, while incorporating philosophies of, of engaged pedagogy, including the, the work of feminist, uh, Black feminist theorist Bell Hooks, um, to what you name cultivating communities of practice, which I love, communities of practice. Like community isn't just a noun, it's a verb, it's something that we cultivate and actively participate in. Um, and as part of this, you encourage your students to bring in their existing knowledges to the classroom. Um, and I think as you do that, you're really troubling and decentering this very vertical Western cultural understanding of 
of hierarchical knowledge production that's based in, in expertise or degrees. Um, and then you have your students engage with, with macro, um, meso, and micro levels of the global intersections that, that your classes really um, address. And I also know that there were a handful of campus events that really influenced um, and directly led you to rethink how you were, you know, creating space in your classroom and what it meant to um, uh, cultivate intercultural exchange within the classroom. So as part of this, you are placing a lot of importance on small groups, encouraging students to bring in their different projects, their voices, their passions, their perspectives, and then coming into dialogue with each other. Um, and it reminds me of Jose Medina's work who wrote The Epistemology of Resistance. Um, in thinking about our experiences in life as potential epistemic resources. So potential resources in helping us to understand ways of being in the world that can be brought into productive um, friction with each other, right? So that, that each person's world can ultimately be augmented um, and shifted when we approach each other with respect, right? And, and genuine reciprocity. Um, and it, it also seems like a very intentional building block way of rebuilding the commons that I was speaking to earlier in the classroom, right? If these spaces aren't really existing in society, if they're not existing in the institution, how can you kind of create these spaces, um, really carve them out intentionally? So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how and why you structure your courses in this way. Um, including maybe some more background on the, on the histories and the campus events that really directly led to you um, reworking your classroom um, and providing us with some tangible examples of some of the transnational topics that you teach and help students understand um, and, and how you kind of uh, encourage them to break them into the smaller pieces so they don't feel really overwhelmed in doing it. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I think, you know, the term that you highlighted, communities of practice, um, you know, this is Etienne Wenger's term. Um, I think it's a really important way to think about what we do in the classroom and, and as educators and in our everyday lives. Really, community, communities of practice are groups of people who share concern or passion for something they do, and they want to learn how to do it better as they interact regularly, right? Um, and you know, there are two things in that definition that really speak to me. One, you know, uh, people who share a con concern or a passion, right? right? So leading with something that is important to you in your life. And then um, the second part is uh, interacting regularly, right? You know, the, the learning to do things better is something that will come through that regular interaction. And if you don't have that regular interaction, it's really hard to cultivate the kinds of practices you want to have. Um, so for me, that term kind of really hinges upon a lot of what uh, brought me into both the Brotherhood Brunch and in the pedagogy that I use. Um, you know, I started teaching at the college in 2017, um, and this is a period of, um, you know, nationwide uh, trauma, really, um, with the continued killing of uh, Black men and Black women uh, and Black trans folk um, by police and other um, aggressors. Um, you know, it also coincided with uh, the rise
rise of white nationalism uh, in the state of Vermont, um, you know, we had a number of uh, white nationalist posters uh, put up at colleges and universities in the area. Um, and this was a very concerning time. Um, you know, the, the sense of um, instability, um, precarity, you know, um, a fear of, uh, of personal harm was very omnipresent. Um, and, you know, um, as a BIPOC individual who grew up in, uh, in this area, I mean, it's not the most unfamiliar feeling to me, um, but it was definitely um, palpable uh, how it affected people's behaviors on campus. Um, and, you know, I mean, <sighs> it's a really tough topic, you know, how do you engage with something like this with a group of, uh, you know, 18 to 21 year olds, 22 year olds, um, and have a discussion that is kind of um, both grounded, but also allows people to, uh, you know, kind of express their, uh, their true selves. Um, how do you let people bring different truths into the classroom um, about personal experience and about collective experience? Um, and, you know, I saw students doing this themselves. So going out and having protests on campus or walking in on uh, faculty senate meetings or, um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, doing these acts of resistance um, and, you know, even acts of, of resolution, right? So students came up with this um, acronym called SNAP to help uh, professors um, kind of understand how to de-escalate these situations in the classroom, you know, stopping discussions, naming issues, addressing those issues and promoting change. Um, and I thought to myself, well, this is the base level, right? This is what they expect us to do. Um, you know, how can we go beyond that to create more inclusive spaces where perhaps, um, you know, not just the, the professors are engaging in that behavior of, of the SNAP acronym, but also teaching others how to kind of be responsible uh, members of this community. And this is where I kind of stumbled on, um, you know, some of the theory around engaged pedagogy that Bell Hooks was uh, writing about, you know, drawing from Paulo Freire and others, mm -hmm. um, but essentially saying, you know, when we step into these, these rooms, whatever they are, classrooms, office spaces, you know, even your own home, um, you know, recognizing that there is a different experience every time you walk in there and you're dealing with uh, like I was saying before, this um, kind of uh, uncontrollable, uh, you know, combination of ingredients. And so to be an effective person in, in an uncultural way uh, requires that you kind of address that difference, um, that you don't just treat every uh, experience as the same. Um, so for me, that was getting to know the students very well. You know, I play a lot of kind of fun games um, around getting to know each other. Uh, we have one called I'm Going to a Picnic. Um, and this, you know, transforms depending on what I teach. Uh, I teach a class on, um, you know, the uh, uh, revolutions of 2010 and ongoing across the MENA region. Um, and, you know, teaching this to students in, uh, in the campus and uh, environment we have is kind of sometimes in their minds disconnected, uh, but we do, you know, I'm going to a revolution and I'm bringing, right? And so students will say their name and then what they're bringing and they'll try to memorize what everybody else has and, uh, and their names, hopefully. And when we kind of get to the end and everybody's, you know, there's 23 names, 23 different things that are being brought and like, okay, well, who do you pick, right? Who's going with you? And, um, you know, we have discussions about what people choose. Some people choose signs and I'm gonna bring food. And some people are like, no, I'm gonna bring weapons, right? 
Now, this is a very real experience, but having de somewhat decontextualized it from a direct experience, um, we kind of have the chance to have a more um, open discussion about it, and especially uh, from something that is so far removed from uh, a student's everyday experience, at least the students that comprise my classroom, um, you know, they kind of start making those connections themselves. So um, I guess in a roundabout way, um, trying to get students to experience interculturality, not just teaching them the concepts. Um, you know, it'd be all well and good if I could walk into a classroom and say, okay, listen, everybody, <laughs> here is the theory that you need to know to do this. But um, for many students, that just doesn't cut it. Um, and so, you know, even thinking about how I teach certain subjects, you know, talking about globalization and, uh, and the world around me, um, it's not just texts. Um, you know, I have students engaging with people who are uh, from the countries that we're talking about, who are experiencing the things that we're trying to understand, and uh, not in a way where I'm moderating what that person's saying or uh, otherwise curtailing them, but allowing them to express exactly what's happening. You know, um, for a lot of us, we get our uh, our knowledge of the world through the news, and you know, this is a filter bubble, just like you know the internet or any of these other um, multimodal technologies that we engage uh, the world through. Um, they're also lenses, right? So we kind of have to sometimes find ways to uh, move those lenses aside or take them off if we can um, to see the world as other people see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Aziz, as you're talking, like it's like I can actually feel the walls of the classroom like begin to like fall away right? It, it's um, like, how do you take this very artificial container and actually make it mean something, right? So there's not like this, like, you know, there's the inside and then there's the outside. No, like everything that's happening out there is also happening in here, right? And, and how do we kind of shift that? Um, I also really appreciate you talking about the dynamic ways that space is is made and remade, right? So I used to think about that. Sometimes I would, when I was still college teaching, I would teach in the same classroom four classes in a row, but that physical space felt completely different, right? With each class and with each day, right? So, you know, even, even the same cohort of students would feel different and I would feel different, right? From, from day to day. So, um, I would always think about the classroom as a contact zone, um, and this is a, it's a cultural studies term for thinking about um, spaces where people who would probably never come into contact with each other intentionally, right, of their own accord, um, are, are suddenly, you know, brought together to share space, um, and there's potential in that for, you know, epistemic growth. Um, you know, so city parks, public transportation, these are examples of contact zones, but th the classroom space is a very intentional contact zone where it its purpose is to really, you know, kind of learn more than we now know together, right, and to potentially create that community. Um, and I also want to name that the college classroom is only one site of pedagogy for you, right? So, um, you know, you, you do work in all sorts of different spaces outside of the college setting. Um, and I also know that your work as an anthropologist brings you into quite a few contact zones. Um, so I just want to highlight that you're not just thinking about these 
practices, you're, you're living them. And so you're also bringing these living practices into the, the college campus, right? Um, I'm wondering if you can just share with us some other pieces of your work and, and how this work, um, yeah, really, really comes to impact the way you're thinking about intercultural learning. Yeah, uh, you know, I think, as I was mentioning in the introduction, um, you know, I really do believe that um, research and teaching are really intimately connected. Beyond that, I think, you know, the lived experience of individuals should be intimately connected to that as well. Um, and for me, um, you know, one thing that's kind of led me to the work that I do is is my personal uh, life. You know, the, the fact that I, um, you know, try to work around the issues of social justice that I study so that it's not just a, um, you know, theoretical practice, but, you know, more along the lines of what you mentioned Jose Medina, what Jose Medina calls epistemic resistance, right? So, um, you know, using my resources and abilities to undermine and change oppressive normative structures, um, and also, as Medina mentions, the complacent cognitive effective functioning that sustains those structures, right? Um, it can be really overwhelming when we look at the world and we think to ourselves, there is a lot wrong with the world, right? It's this paralyzing um, notion. And, you know, I think in some ways uh, it's paralyzing because we can't predict what other people are going to do in response to the world around them. Um, you know, we don't have this ability to, um, you know, have this harmonious uh, mental uh, perception where we all suddenly see the same thing. We do have to negotiate the world around us through this difference. Um, and um, so in my other work, uh, which uh, largely is with nonprofit organizations, uh, educational institutions, uh, and the like, um, you know, I try to work on developing interculturality and in practice to really um, help these organizations find ways to spread their message across, you know, national territories and even, um, you know, regional territories. Um, one organization that I work with pretty extensively is called Solidarity Works, which is um, a woman-led nonprofit in um, Bulgaria that uh, runs programs for uh, youth and adults around issues of social justice, social change, and leadership. Um, and this summer, I had the privilege of working with them on an Erasmus uh, exchange program for um, young leaders, and the topic was around social justice and storytelling. Um, and so, you know, this is a really interesting concept to, to combine, you know, when we think about social justice, we do think about the narratives um, that uphold them, um, and also resistance narratives and counter narratives. Um, and what I started to realize through this experience um, was something that I, I had experienced in my earlier work, which is, you know, we know things as academics that people know as people. Um, you know, these concepts that we have complex terms for are floating around and being operationalized by people every single day. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, resistance stories, somebody's like, oh, well, this is, this is talk back, right? Like, this is just how you talk back to. I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good term for it, right? Um, mm -hmm. So once we kind of established that common ground, it was, it was a good space for us to now negotiate process. Like, how do we actually do this? And, you know, I could bring my perspective in from the, the spaces that I've engaged with. 
um, and so could the participants. And it was through that co-construction that we kind of came up with this interculturality of, of ourselves. You know, we have people from seven different uh, countries who had, you know, very different conceptions of the world around them, but somehow we were able to create a community for, you know, seven, eight days where we were living in a house together and kind of taking care of the house and, you know, providing all of these community uh, services that, uh, you know, if we had been separate, I don't know if we would have even thought to do it our, uh, on individual terms, but, um, you know, these kinds of things are, are what I'm invested in um, most of the time these days. And I, I find that, you know, uh, community action research is is kind of my, my target here. So trying to get the communities that I work with to engage these practices in a critical way so that they can build up, you know, epistemes of their own uh, that they can use to counter those hegemonic narratives about how and why and where and when things happen. Yeah, beautiful. I, I, I'm just thinking about the importance of youth leadership, right? When, when I was making my exit from um, from the college that that was about the time period that that you were talking about, and um, you know, I was just like, oh, okay, the youth have it, <laughs> right? Like, like they're the ones who are really pushing. Like these structures, these institutions are not working, right? So um, instead of kind of being like the teacher, how can I actually just like be in shared space to cultivate and create these new intercultural liberatory spaces, right? You know, wherever they are. Um, and that's what I hear you really saying. Um, and I think just kind of as a side note, understanding that academia is also a culture and it's a culture that isolates a lot of people um, and takes a very arrogant posture. So I love that language of of talking back and that part of intercultural exchange is being able to listen to each other's words and metaphors and paradigms and points of reference and, and understanding how they overlap. Um, so Aziz, we are unfortunately <laughs> almost at the end. I'm wondering if you can just, um, you know, kind of quickly speak to how spirituality kind of fits into this work for you. And also, you know, just any wisdom, any insights or, or vision dream building that you want to leave our listeners with. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, spirituality for me kind of plays a really important role in, in the work that I do. Um, one, because it's an all-encompassing practice, you know, uh, to develop these kinds of things isn't just a nine to five experience, right? It's, it's how you kind of start living your life. And so um, for me, you know, uh, the practice of understanding the world around me became this uh, process of self-discovery and collective discovery. And I think um, for every single one of us, we have a process by which we do that. You know, I consider us all ethnographers. This is what I tell all my students. You know, you're, you're constantly coming into contact with uh, all kinds of, you know, to use research terms, data. Mm -hmm. And if you just let it kind of bounce off you and don't, uh, you know, take into account what it's trying to, to lead you to, yeah, you might find yourself lost. But if you can find a way to develop a critical consciousness, some some center of yourself or even decenter of yourself from which to engage this, I think you'll be in a better place. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love, I use the language of data in my, uh, in my coaching sessions and 
spiritual work. So I feel like that dovetails, that's like, you know, us having different pathways and different trainings and, and finding those overlaps. Um, so Aziz, thank you so much for coming and being here with us today on Heart Change Consciousness. Um, if you're interested in listening to other uh, episodes of Heart Change Consciousness or finding more out about my work, you can just visit transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. Um, and again, Aziz, thank you so much for being here with us. And listeners, thank you for coming and and being here with us today thank you for tuning in to heart change consciousness on transformationtalkradio.com with me dr trish derosher make sure to come back next time so we can continue to awaken your soul purpose look forward to more conversations with your favorite authors change makers influencers activists and many more who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. For more information about me and transformative consciousness coaching, visit transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. This was Heart Change Consciousness on transformationtalkradio.com.